Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am so excited for today's guest and topic, and I think he's really going to inspire you. My guest is Dr. Kofi Essel. He is a board-certified community pediatrician at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., Dr. Essel serves as Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, the Director of the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences Culinary Medicine Program, the Director of the GWU Community Urban Health Scholarly Concentration, and the Director of the GWU Clinical Public Health Summit on Obesity. Dr. Essel has dedicated his career to advocacy and research around healthcare training, health disparities, and community engagement, with expertise and national recognition in the areas of addressing obesity and food insecurity in families. Dr. Essel sits on the National Academy of Sciences Roundtable on Obesity Solutions Lived Experience Innovation Collaborative and was nationally recognized by the Alliance for a Healthier Generation for helping to create an innovative curriculum to enhance pediatric resident trainee skills on obesity management. He also co-authored a national toolkit for pediatric providers to address food insecurity in their clinical settings with the AAP and the Food Research and Action Center. He is the principal investigator of a large multidisciplinary population health initiative that aims to strengthen community clinical ties to address diet-related chronic diseases in historically marginalized settings in Washington, D.C. Dr. Essel has received numerous local national awards for his professional practice, in addition to being selected for the top 40 under 40 leaders in health award by the National Minority Quality Forum. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kofi Essel. Hey, Kofi, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me today. Excited to be here. Oh, I am so excited. When I heard your um, talk at the AAP National Conference, I just was so intrigued about this topic. So it's really not something I'd thought about before. And I was so glad that you brought it up and then super grateful that you were willing to do this. So thanks so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, I always like to start with is what was your journey into pediatrics? So maybe you can share a little bit about how you picked pediatrics. Ah, yes, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. So I, I came into, into medical school and I went to school at undergrad at Emory University and I went to medical school at George Washington University. When I got there, I really had a liking towards uh, sort of community health kind of opportunities and and I found some really wonderful mentors, one in particular named Dr. Ronique Shields. And uh, she kind of took me under her wing and I started working with her at her clinic and working and doing um, asthma uh, education in the community and all kinds of really cool stuff that, that I thought I, I really enjoyed. And I, I, I noticed that that was something that really captured my attention. I also linked up with other mentors who are working with young people. And I thought it was really an, a special and amazing opportunity for me. Um, my third year came, of course, the time to kind of think about what I want to do. And I'm doing my different rotations. And I had the most fun, any rotation on pediatrics. And and it, I always say, like, I looked at the people I worked with, and they seemed to have fun as well, right? You, you can't just take my perspective, my own perspective. I looked at those around me, and I noticed that they really enjoyed what they were doing. They smiled. They loved coming back. And that was something that I knew that I would be able to have the opportunity of doing each and every day. And I said, this is, this is the career for me. The opportunity to be an advocate outside of the box of the clinic, the opportunity to, to help give the voiceless a voice, the opportunity to work alongside the next generation. These were things that were really sort of crafted for me that I could have a wonderful uh, chance of doing. And I, and I knew it was for me. Yeah, I, it's very interesting in talking to pediatricians. I think there's a very common thread of liking the people that you work with. And for me, that was exactly the case. I, I always thought I wanted to go into OB. And when I did my rotation, I'm like, these folks are miserable. They're so unhappy about worrying about getting sued. And 
I'm just like, well, that doesn't look like that much fun. So I, I found my home in peds too. Yeah. It, it's funny, you know, in third year, one of the things I tell my students is like, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is, do you want to do surgery or not? And, and nothing against surgery, but I realized that that was not the career for me. I remember being at the table, my hands up and and everybody would set the table for their level. And I'm a little taller and I would have to bend over for hours at a time. My back was hurting. It just was not a great experience for me. It was uncomfortable. I didn't really enjoy that experience as much as I enjoyed in interacting with the kids and the families and, and all that stuff. It was, it was so fun for me. Right, right. Well, you've gotten interested in this whole topic of food insecurity. And it's just such an interesting perspective that I think we need to really be aware of. And, and I don't think that I certainly wasn't. What was your experience with patients and families that made you begin to wonder about if they're getting enough to eat? Well, I actually didn't hear about the term food insecurity till the end of my medical school. And, and, I, and I realized that that's not that late in general. But at the same time, for me, now that I'm so diligent about making sure all of my medical students know about what this is, it's surprising to me. Uh, I remember in in medical school, my fourth year, so I was doing a ton of work in nutrition, and we can talk about that if you want, but I was doing a ton of work in, in nutrition, really excited about it. I got a great opportunity to speak to a bunch of policymakers, academic and te academics and teachers about uh, what nutrition and culturally linguistically diverse learners have to do with each other, how important it is to be providing quality nutrition for a variety of different learners. And I remember going around the city, talking to different teachers, and they were telling me these stories about how they would have to give money from their own pockets to their students to be able to purchase food. And I'm like, well, I don't understand. Why would, why would that happen? And I started to explore it more and more and more. And yes, one of the, one of the things was that sometimes the food didn't necessarily meet the cultural needs of that student. Yes. On top of that, other need was that there was a realization that families sometimes weren't accessing some of the school meal programs and things like that. And children were come to school incredibly hungry. And I began to realize that, you know, kids were getting sometimes more than two thirds of their meals at school. And that was such a harbor for, for quality food and nutrition that a lot of kids weren't necessarily take, able to take advantage of. So during that time, I came across the word food insecurity for that lecture that I was, I was giving. And I, it, it blew my mind. I, I didn't know it existed to such a degree in the United States of America. And so when I became a resident at Children's National as part of a community health track, and uh, I got the opportunity in my second year to work with nonprofit who's doing really good work in the District of Columbia. And I remember sitting in uh, Dr. Lee Beer's office and Dr. Lee Beer's past president of AAP sitting in her office and she's like, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, uh, I like nutrition and you know, food security, I started learning about that, but I don't really know who's out there who's doing work in this space. And she mentioned an organization that uh, really changed my life, an organization called DC Hunger Solutions. And DC Hunger Solutions is an anti-hunger organization focused on eliminating hunger in the District of Columbia. And it was a subsidiary or sort of a branch of FRAC, the Food Research and Action Center, a national anti-hunger organization. And I worked with them and I came across this tool called the Hunger Vital Sign, a tool that you can use in clinical settings to screen, to identify food insecurity in the clinical spaces. I started working with nurse, school nurses and getting them to understand how food insecurity was so relevant in the city and how it affected the kids that would come into their office. Sometimes, you know, we would be so angry at the kids and like, what's going on? Why are you so frustrated and, and anxious on Monday? Well, you had a weekend of time where you weren't eating to the same degree and the same quality food as you were in school. So I started to realize all these things, started to get involved in the policy and the community level and, and understand it at the research level. And it, it transformed my life and my approach to nutrition and health by, by getting that background. Wow. It just kind of blows your mind that kids are hungry. I, it just, you know, in a country that has as much wealth that there would be children that, that are hungry. And it's kind of like the whole topic of ACEs and how, you know, that whole thought about adverse childhood experiences was never part of our lexicon. And now, you know, it's been brought to the fore. And I, I wonder about food insecurity kind of being that same, same sort of topic, but what are the, what are the statistics? I mean, what do, what do we need to know about what, what's it really look like out there? 
Yeah, so um, when you think about statistics of food insecurity, typically what we end up doing every year, the USDA sends out a survey. So the 20, the most recent data is a 2021 report. And what that's really doing is looking at the 2020 data. So basically they look at the year before, in December of the year before, they ask about 40 to 50,000 households, uh, a series of questions, typically about 18 questions. And based on that survey and asking those questions around the country, we extrapolate that data and get a better sense of what's going on sort of nationwide. Nationwide, when you're looking at food insecurity rates, you're seeing about 10.5%, up one in nine households experiencing food insecurity. When you're looking at households with children, that number goes up to about one in six to one in seven households with children experiencing food insecurity, which is quite significant. Typically, it follows the range of poverty, how the poverty line looks. Poverty in particular actually increased more this past year than food insecurity. It was incredibly surprising when we looked at the data. We didn't see the food insecurity national data increase from 2019 to 2020, which was surprising. With COVID, with all what we have seen in the public, we were expecting that number to jump up incredibly high. When you look at the last recession between 2007 and 2009, you saw a huge 4% increase. So we expected to see a similar jump. But at the same time, what that also says is that we know how to do this. We know how to be quick to respond, change programs, improve programs, Uh, respond in a charitable way. There's so many things that were done to kind of buffer the numbers. And it says that we can do this better if we put our thought and focus into this. Now, at the same time, because national numbers didn't necessarily increase, we did see changes in some of the small minutia, right? So like you saw the number of, of children, households with children increase in terms of percentage of households with food insecurity. You saw numbers in black and brown communities increase. You saw some of the other little smaller numbers as well increase. So you did see some numbers increase and some decrease, but in general, that overall number stayed about the same. You can also see significant disparities in looking at food insecurity numbers as well. So in particular, um, if you look at white American households, about 10% of white American households experiencing food insecurity, Hispanic and African-American households goes about 20% and 30%, right? So it doubles and triples the rate of food insecurity. And it's always important to realize, like, is this an issue of, you know, one, not knowing how to purchase food or save food or store food and all these things? And that's not the issue. The issue goes deeper. The issue goes back to poverty. It goes back to, we can draw uh, connections to racism. We can draw connections to housing segregation. We can draw connections to systemic changes that occurred that lead to what we see to this day, right? When I, when I focus even on, on COVID and kind of think about the picture of what COVID did, COVID was an interesting thing. In, in fact, initially when I looked at it, I thought it was serving as an equalizer, right? I, I called it a great equalizer. Everybody kind of being affected equally. Prime ministers and, and, and actors and actors, all kinds of people were affected equally. But then you gaze more into it and you realize, wait a second, this is a great magnifier. It's magnifying disparities that existed all along. In fact, it's making them even worse. And now we have to do something about them. They're in our face. We cannot hide from them. We are all facing them to some degree. and We have to do something about them. So those disparities are rich and it's something that we have to step up and really and act, and advocate. Wow. I, I think that's so interesting that the idea about, you know, the equalizer and the mag, I mean, that's a very, that's a very powerful perspective to think about it in that way. And you you were talking about, we know how to do this. And I'm wondering if, you know, you're talking about some of the things that happened, like the child tax credit that would give folks more actual funds to purchase food or some of the, I, I guess the, you know, the food pantries and how that was, you know, I know of teachers who were delivering meals to families' homes. Is that kind of what you're talking about with we know how to do this? Exactly. So so I don't like to lean completely on the charitable food system to be the response. I don't think that there's enough resource there completely, but you saw the charitable food system respond greatly. 60% of clients were new. Four in 10 people walk into the door or, or experience, like there was, the numbers were crazy in terms of what you were seeing in terms of new clients, 
people that were coming to the food pantries. And then the donation, the charitable donation from families, from organizations to charitable organizations in general, the food pantries and food banks was amazing to see. So that's definitely big. We also saw some other things that occurred just similar to what we saw with the last recession, right? So in particular, we saw that the increased SNAP benefits to families. We know that SNAP benefits by far are woefully, were woefully insufficient, woefully insufficient. When you look at the numbers, 99% of counties around the country were saying, were indicating that it was insufficient for our family to, to live an active and healthy lifestyle. So what needed to happen? We needed to increase our SNAP benefits for families. We were basing the equations based on old archaic formulas that weren't really what families were dealing with today in this day and age. So what we saw was an, a rapid increase in SNAP benefits to the max and then above that by 20% or more for, for families. And families were seeing that that helped to relieve some of that excess burden, that stress. We saw with schools in particular, oh, it, it, let's say with SNAP, either we, we were open to new ideas with SNAP. So we tried out new pilots to be able to allow food to be delivered to families. We took away some of the stipulations and the restrictions to allow families to be onboarded to SNAP a little bit quicker. For WIC, we took away some of the stipulations for families to have to keep coming back over and over again. We took away some of that to allow it to be a smoother process for them. We added some incentives, some fruit and vegetable incentives there. The pandemic EBT program, a phenomenal program, which basically put the school breakfast and lunch amount of money on the EBT card or debit card for a family so that they can spend that and really help to supply food for their family. Um, we saw programs like summer EBT step up as well, where families could take, you know, summer is you know great time to get out of school, but a lot of kids go more and more hungry in that summertime, right? There's a summer meal program where a lot of kids can go and get two meals a day if you're less than the age of 18 to a variety of summer meal sites across your area, if you're in an area that has a ton of summer meal sites. But summer EBT, what that did is give the autonomy, the food sovereignty back to the family that they can go and purchase foods that they eat, their cultural foods, their foods that they enjoy, that they're able to, to produce. And if they're able to have a little bit of a better safety net, then they're able to step up the quality of their foods as well. Typically, when families are trying to access foods, if they have or experience food insecurity, the first step is accessing enough food. They're not trying to get the, the kale and quinoa bowls that, you know, we may be pushing from the clinic when we're not meeting our family where they are. They're trying to get enough food. That's the first step. As that is achieved, then they can start to achieve these other processes and these novel foods, these other uh, foods that are going to improve their overall health and things like that as well. But it's really important to kind of think about getting enough and then again, thinking about the nutrition security of one's family. Wow. I, I love that concept. I haven't heard that term about food sovereignty. Would that translate into, I get to choose how I want to use the funds to feed my family? Exactly. I get to choose how I choose to feed my family with, with my funds and giving them the autonomy to do it. Could you argue, oh, well, these quote unquote, these families are just going to waste it on sugary drinks and these kind of things. The reality is the ability to choose one's food is a humanistic ability and an ability we should be able to provide to, to people, right? They should be able to have that autonomy. Just the same way that if I have a little bit more privilege, I'm able to, you know, choose something different for my family and not eat quote unquote salads all day, every day, right? That, that, that flexibility is something that makes people human, right? It gives people that autonomy and, and they want that autonomy. And it also it also is culturally relevant, right? It recognizes the role of, of their culture, their foods that they eat, and which is also important for mental health, for their sense of well-being, for their overall stress, anxiety, right? This is all really important as well. So what do you say? I was one time at a wedding at a table and people were talking about school lunch and why should we have to pay? And in my mind, I was just totally baffled. Like, how are we talking about that it's not okay to spend money to feed kids. But I think, you know, we have such a, a country that one of our beliefs is, you know, you can pull up your bootstraps and do this on your own, right? Um, so why do you need, quote, a handout? I mean, what, what do you say to that? Yeah, that narrative has been a common narrative for many generations. And I think, you know, the concept of rugged individualism, you can do it by yourself, work hard. Now, it's important to work hard, to strive, and to not take that hope away from people. And I think that's incredibly important to never take hope away. 
At the same time, we must understand that everybody's not starting at the same point. That's so important to understand. Some one, one of the examples that sometimes I share with my students is even thinking about the concept of, of redlining, right? The idea of housing segregation, the idea of in the 30s, the government sent out a group sponsored by the government to outline communities to determine which communities were better to invest in than other communities. When that happened, certain communities that had higher numbers of black and brown communities, uh, individuals and immigrant individuals were given negative labels, the label of a C or D. The D was sort of outlined in the red, right? Later on, a few years later, when FHA loans came out, Federal Housing Administration loans came out to offer sort of low interest loans to be able to enter into the quote unquote middle class, to be able to enter into wealth, that was not offered equally and equitably to those who were in those C and D communities. So as a result, families couldn't purchase homes, even though they had the money, they couldn't purchase those homes it, with, with those kind of low interest loans. So they would have to go to predatory, predatory loan, loan organizations and agencies and give them the loans. And some of these people would pull the loans right from under them. This was something that we saw. So what happened in these communities? So you saw this great flight of resources and wealth from the communities. Why? Well, when that money was pulled away from the community, you started seeing banks leave. You started to see grocery stores leave. You started to see all of these community, very important structural pieces to communities start to leave and go out to the suburbs and go out to different places. And as a result, these communities were left abandoned to fend for themselves. And when you look at what that does to someone's food security status, when you don't have access, when you're not able to, you know, keep that money locally in that system, it really hamp hampers food security, right? It hampers food security. And you look over time, those same communities to this day, you're seeing these communities look the same, low income, marginalized, aren't really uh, able to get a lot of grocery stores to come in and other resources to come in. And we're blaming them. Why don't you just work harder? But the reality is, all this stuff happened beforehand that led to this stuff, right? Housing covenants that didn't let uh, people of color move into certain communities, right? All these things led to these, these factors. So as a result of those factors, we see what we see today. We cannot forget that. And the last thing I'll say is think about the wealth gap, right? The wealth gap in, in particular, a large part of it is due to this housing segregation, is due to this in inequity that occurred. And so you'll see the median wealth in white communities and white households is about $188,000. The median wealth in African-American households, about 24,000 median wealth in about in, in Hispanic and Latino households, about 36,000, right? So it, there's an eight and five time drop in wealth. That wealth is used during COVID-19, during a, a, a worldwide pandemic, to be able to use that equity to support one's family, to be able to, when we have job loss or job, uh, underemployment or some sort of job, something happening with one's job or being able to work from home, we have that security we can lean on. But if you don't, increases anxiety, increases stress, what do you do then? So I've said enough there, but at the end of the day, the recognition of working hard, I think is important. Work hard, yes, work hard, but realize that we all don't start in the same place. And if we can play a role in influencing our the health of our neighbor, why not do that? Why not be able to do that? It sounds like, I mean, doors are closed. It doesn't matter how hard you're working. If the door isn't open, you can't move anywhere. I mean, literally, you can't move. And figuratively, you you can't move out. There's no, even if you had the means to, to buy, it's just, it sort of blows your mind that we have such a hard time seeing that. But, you know, if I'm sitting over here and I'm white and I have what I have, I it's hard for me to see like, well, how can it not be that I'm where I am and you're not? And, mm. and, you know, I've worked hard for what I have. I deserve what I have. And why can't you do the same? But, you know, again, what you're saying is the system functions in such a way that it sometimes it almost doesn't matter how hard you're working. That I, I, I can't get to where you are because the stepping stones aren't there. Yeah. Poverty is expensive and privilege is blinding. Poverty is expensive because of the very things you're mentioning. It's expensive to be having multiple jobs, to work hard, to get your family, you know, to have ends meet. It's expensive with that anxiety and that stress that you're dealing with. The, the, you mentioned ACEs, right? That toxic stress. Poverty is expensive in general. Right. And, and we don't recognize it as an expense to our family and privilege is blinded. 
because we continue to isolate ourselves, put ourselves in our bubbles and not realize what's going on around us. And what would it mean if we get outside of our comfort zones and be able to see the experiences of others? How would that change how we responded? And some people would change in a positive way. Some people would drive, they drive their heels even deeper. But at the same time, I think it's important, even especially as clinicians, right? We have to recognize that because oftentimes clinicians come from middle to upper income backgrounds, right? So the, the, the connection to poverty, the connection to social determinants, the connection to these kind of experiences is oftentimes very hindered. So if we come from that high heel of looking down on our family, that is not how we meet our families where we are, where they are in particular. Well, and I think one of the points you've made in some of the publications that have been out from the AAP is that you can't always tell by looking. And I mean, I've thought about mm. some families where, you know, they all work heavy. And so, you know, of course, we're worrying about obesity. And the problem was not necessarily the obesity, the problem. So when I started talking about, you know, the nutrition information, like, you know, what, tell me what your fruits and vegetables are like for the day. And it's abysmal, but when she was finally able, and it was a family that I'd known for a long time, was able to say, we can't afford it. You know, the fruit goes bad so quickly, you know, and then we were able to talk about, you know, the nutritional value of things like, you know, frozen foods. But the problem was they didn't have the money to buy it. And it wasn't that they weren't working. They were working, but the jobs that they had were, they, I mean, you know, the wages just didn't afford. I mean, they were just, you know, literally hand to, you know, hand to mouth kind of trying to pay our rent. And what, what are you going to pay? You know, and the idea too, about, you know, if you can't make your rent, you may be out of a home. And I, you know, it's so hard to imagine for any of us, imagine that somebody came to your home and said, you need to be out of here in 24 hours. What would you take? How would you do that? You know, you've got garbage bags and you pile your stuff in and you can't take anything. How do you start over? You know, so, but that, you know, we make assumptions about who's hungry and you can't tell. And, and so I think a lot about what I'm wondering is, you know, this idea about how do we ask and you talk about a food hunger sign or vital sign, I'm sorry. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what we see and what, what's really happening Yes, or what um, we don't see, I guess. Please let me highlight a, a study that my team was working on a few years ago. We, you know, right before this, this topic became really hot, we, we started sending out surveys to providers around the country and asked them, hey, are you screening for food insecurity? Are you looking for it in your clinic? And, and I, you know, got a lot of responses. Yeah, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're screening. We're identifying it. Okay, great, great. Do you use a screening tool? No, we, we don't use screening tools too much. Okay, how do you identify it? Well, we look for signs. We look for things that we see. What kind of things are you looking for? Well, the number one things we saw was poor weight gain and underweight being the factors that providers would be looking for to experience it, to know if a family is experiencing food insecurity. But the truth is, food insecurity, as you described, is sometimes described as being invisible. That is the most common sign that you'll see. Why? Because anthropometric changes, weight gain and weight loss, clinical signs, uh, laboratory signs, anemia, other things like that are not consistent and reliable to be able to identify if a family is experiencing food insecurity or not. So as a result, we need a better way of determining that. And the, the best way that we can see in determining that is the same way we would use for looking at maybe trying to identify autism earlier or developmental delays earlier. We screen. Pediatricians, we screen for things. We try to identify things early on and really change the course of the health of that family and that patient. So for food insecurity, there are other screening tools available, but one of the most uh, common tools used across the country is known as the hunger vital sign. The hunger vital sign is two simple questions that are asked in clinical settings, and we recommend asking them universally to all your patients, at least at well-child visits, right? At least at regular yearly physicals. If not all the time, you can ask it, but at least at well-child visits and do it all the time. Don't do it for those who your bias or stigma is there for, right? Oh, they look like they may be struggling with food. Let me ask that family alone. When you do that, you're just really re-emphasizing your bias. And when, I, when I've when i talked to providers, once we started doing this kind of screening around the country, they're always so surprised. I didn't know it existed to this degree in my clinic, they said. 
So what I really encourage providers to do, start a screening practice in your setting by incorporating these screening tools. It's two questions easy to incorporate into screening. You can do it, you know, while the patient's waiting in the waiting room. If you have a kiosk sign in, they can do it there. They can do it in the exam room waiting for you. There's a variety of ways that they can do that. Try to do it in a private setting because these questions are very, you know, sensitive questions to ask. But at the same time, these questions came out of the gold standard 18 item questionnaire that I talked about before. It's the first two questions. They have a great sensitivity and specificity, meaning they're really good at being able to identify if a family's at risk for experiencing food insecurity. And if one or both of the questions are positive, which is often true or sometimes true, then the family is at risk for food insecurity. And then the next step, don't just screen, you also need to intervene. It is, I, I, I'm being a little bit extra, but it is criminal to screen without having the tools in place to intervene, right? We should be able to, if you're gonna screen, make sure you have a tool to intervene. Don't screen just for data purposes because it just reopens trauma, right? It reopens this wound and you're not going to do anything about it, right? So making sure you have meaningful tools in place is really important to think about ahead of time and prepare ahead of time before you go ahead and set up a system like that. But screening with those two questions is critically important and then stepping in and helping the family get connected to meaningful resources to address food insecurity, at least at that level. So if I'm a patient, I'm a parent, and I come in and I'm, I have a visit with you, what are the questions that you would ask? What's the scripting? So the way I would usually ask it is not asking it verbally. Now, verbally is an okay way to ask, and thank you for saying that. It's an okay way to ask, but as we've seen, that the rate of positivity is lower when you ask verbally versus asking on paper. And you can imagine why. We as clinicians are quite good at what we do, quote unquote, right? (laughs) We're very efficient. We got to do a lot in a short amount of time. Those two questions of in the last 12 months, have you worried that your food would run out before you had money to buy more? In the last 12 months, did the food that you buy not just not last before you before your money ran out? All right. These kind of questions, we would start to take shortcuts around. Are you experiencing any hunger in your home? Are you having any trouble with food in your home, right? We start to just take shortcuts around it. And then the validation becomes unvalidated, right? Invalidate, right? And that becomes a less beneficial question. That's one. Two, it's an uncomfortable question to ask verbally. We, our own quirks, start to ask it in a weird way. Our face may change, whatever it may be. The family may be wondering, what is, why are they asking me this, right? And three, it's harder for the family to answer that sort of out loud than if they were to write it down, right? So there are a variety of reasons we encourage family or clinicians or practices to have it sort of through a written kiosk. The way I usually would would, uh, start it, if I was to ask it verbally, which I have before, and sometimes I probe deeper when I look at the written response, is I start with, hey, you know, we ask this question to all of our families. And, you know, right now it's been a really tough time. A lot of my families have described some challenges around food. In the last 12 months, can you tell me, is this answer often true, sometimes true, or never true? In the last 12 months, did you worry that your food may run out before you had money to buy more? Um, and so, you know, I kind of go around it there. And sometimes I'll even do a primer around like, hey, you know, it's, there's a lot of data around families feeling like if they were to answer social determinant questions in a positive way, there may be risk of the provider feeling like they're neglectful towards their child. What if they take my child away from me? What if they don't think I'm a good parent, right? And that's a fear that's really true and tangible. So as a result, sometimes I'll also buffer it with saying, hey, you know, especially if they've answered it a certain way on the questionnaire, I'll buffer it and say something around like, this is something that we provide to a lot of families. We have a lot of really great resources there's no penalty by you taking these resources, you know, so just so they kind of can have some sort of framework with understanding that I think it's important to do as well. So those are the kind of ways that I would ask it, kind of prime it, make sure you understand this is universal. This is not pinpointed towards you because I see anything that I'm concerned about anything. And then I go ahead and ask those questions and then respond with with resources, validate it and then respond with resources. I think that that's probably tied up in a lot of shame, you know, like, you know, a basic tenant of being a parent is that I can take care of my child, you know, I can house them, I can feed them, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just the basics. I mean, it's hard to think about doing homework with a kid if everybody's worrying about where you're going to sleep tonight and are we going to have enough food? And I think we don't, you know, we, if we don't see that and don't ask, yeah, I can see where, and, and what you're talking about, this idea of normalizing, I ask everybody this, 
in a way that is non-judgmental because I, I guess it would be surprising. And if you assume by how people look, cause you know, I would think about, you know, people come dressed a certain way. They, you know, their babies dressed in really cute clothes and, and you think, you know, they've got a phone and you think, oh, they have money to spend on these things. Therefore they must not be hungry. That's a false assumption, right? Oh, wow. So, so let's, let's address two of those things. So one, shame is big and guilt is big, right? And, and on top of that, there's also parents trying to protect their children from knowing what's going on in their home, right? So like, you know, especially if it's young children, I'll feel free in opening up and having conversation. They're, they're not really paying attention to us anyway. But if the kids are older, no way will I have a deep, meaningful conversation about it with the child in the room, because that opens up all kinds of discomfort. The kid starts asking questions during the exam. No, we're not going to do that. So sometimes I say, hey, mom, can we talk outside? Or hey, parent, can we, grandparent, can we talk outside in the hallway? I just got, I want to make sure we, we at something. And then sometimes I'll start with, hey, is there anything else you want to chat about, about, you know, your child? And then also, look, it seems like you you answered here. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we have some really great resources that we can provide for you. Is that okay if we, if we share some of those with you? And again, asking permission. I don't just throw stuff at you, right? Asking permission. Do you want it or do you not? And some families will say, no, that's fine. You know, and, and we really want to address that. The second thing you said, I think is interesting because some of my my patients or my my students sometimes they'll go in a room and they may notice hey this family had a tag on their jeans or a tag on their sweater why why did they take the tag off a lot of times the, the student i try to help them understand that these parents are loving parents and they want to put their best foot forward especially for the clinician or whoever's going to see them on the outward the outside they want to help they want everybody to think everything is fine don't worry about anything I used to do a program that we created. We did home visitations with our, with our families around addressing diet-related chronic diseases. And I would bring my residents, we would do windshield surveys, understanding the community, understanding the assets, looking through the windshield of the car, understanding the assets, and some of the challenging areas of the community that, that we could take advantage of and connect families to. When we would go into home, we saw that the family would do everything they can to put on that. That, that best face that they could, right? They would try to get everything organized. They would try to have everything set up perfectly, but they were experiencing oftentimes deep poverty, right? But it's on the outside, it was trying to put forward this, this presentation to make sure they're guarding what's maybe going on behind the scenes. And that's what ends up happening oftentimes. What you're seeing on the outside doesn't tell the whole story. And that's what my students said over and over again. I never knew that my family that I saw in clinic was experiencing the poverty they were experiencing until I went in their home into their neighborhood. When I saw them in clinic, I thought everything was fine. I didn't think anything was going on. And that's the truth. You really don't know. You don't know anybody's story. And it's important that that's why it's so important that we ask these questions. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, there's a whole thing of dignity about, mm. you know, um, I, I'm holding on to what I, whatever I got, you know, and I want you to know that I take care of myself. I'm not just letting it all go. And I take care of my child. You know, they, they're, they're warm enough. They're, they're well-dressed, you know, but it, it is, it's the only way I can maintain my own, my own dignity about that. Yeah. There's just so much about worthiness, right. And feeling good enough that plays into this. There were some other things that you talked about that I was fascinated with terms that I'd never thought about, especially when we're making those judgments. I mean, they are mm -hmm. in our head about, for example, somebody um, would qualify as obese that, oh my God, not only do they have enough food, they've got way too much food and they buy, they're buying crappy food, you know, knowing also that those foods are often cheap and that may be why they're buying them. And um, so the assumption that because somebody's heavy, they must not be hungry is not true. Can you talk a little bit about food anxiety, food monotony? What do those things mean? Yeah, very, very good point. So the what people used to call the obesity paradox, right? Like how can you be experiencing hunger and then have obesity at the same time? And, and it makes, it's not really a paradox anymore. It makes perfect sense, the association that's there. When, you, when I think about the lived experiences of my families that experience food insecurity, I tend to think about it through sort of a trajectory, sort of a step-by-step -step trajectory. And that's what you were kind of highlighting. The first step that, that I tend to see and hear about 
is my families will describe this concept of food anxiety, a constant preoccupation, a perseveration with where one's next meal is going to come from. This idea of uh, reduction of one's cognitive bandwidth, the ability to shift and focus on many things becomes hindered because of this toxic stress on one's brain. Where is this next meal going to come from? It's interesting. We've done uh, a lot of times with my students this snap challenge where we have them live on the snap budget, which used to be about $1.40 per person per meal. It's gone up to about $1.80 now on average since October 1st of 2021. But we've seen that when they live on that for the week, I'll see the different extremes. And they often will say like they're in class and what am I going to make for my next? Like, how am I going to, you know, put the pieces together? How do I stretch this food? Like, that is a constant thing that they're thinking about. So that's a, that first step. This this concept of food anxiety. After that becomes sort of what you described, this monotony of the diet. So the quality begins to decrease. The diet begins to have less variety. It becomes more nutritionally poor and more calorically rich. Right? Why is that? Well. Oftentimes, foods that are more calorically rich, more processed, have high amounts of flavor, right? Because they're designed that way, it's more sugar, more salt, more fat, right? In addition to being cheaper, they're more cost effective, they're easily, easily accessible. And at the same time, if I'm struggling with my finances, if I have a financial hit or hardship, the first thing that tends to shift is my, my food budget. And if that's going to change, I know that I can't be wasting food. If I'm wasting food, I know that that's going to hit me even harder, especially if now I'm experiencing a little bit more anxiety. I don't want my child to waste his food. You better eat that food, eat everything on your plate, make sure not to waste anything there because this is the money that I've worked hard for, that my, our family has worked hard for. So let me buy things that I know they'll eat. Let me buy things that if, even if you think about the, the, the stress of, of, of poverty in terms of time, Time ends up being one of the biggest factors that limits people from, you know, cooking and these other things that we, you know, want them to do and, and find the time to do. And when it comes down to it, that ability to find the time to cook and meal plan and all these things is oftentimes hindered. And, and that's something that, that we often see. So after the quality of food begins to decrease, the next thing that happens is the quantity of food decreases. So that's the next step. Whose food decreases first? Of course, adults and then the children, right? So adults will do everything they can to protect their children from experiencing the stresses of food insecurity. So the adult will start to take in less food so their kids can eat more. And then lastly, the kids start to decrease their food intake as well. That is when you see the food intake for the child decreasing, we know that's sort of a, a later step. Now, the quality has already changed. Right, you're now you're eating more processed foods. You don't feel as full. It's 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 more likely to lead to diet-related chronic diseases. It's it's more likely to cause other issues going on in in one's health. But at the same time, when the food intake begins to decrease, we know that that's more of an extreme. Even though that occurs way down there, we know that children experience the toxic and palpable stresses of food insecurity through that whole pathway. It doesn't matter if they're only decreasing their food all the way at the end of that pathway. The last thing I'll say is I think it's interesting because kids, especially, you know, preteens, teenagers, they will often say, hey, they often eat less so that their kid, the younger kids in the home can eat more. So they are sort of what is called having their own coping mechanism to kind of uh, deal with and compensate for some of the challenges in the home. Sometimes they don't let the parents know. Right. They know what's going on in the home. The parents don't think they know, but they know it. They feel it. They see it. But nobody talks about it because it's too much of a sensitive issue. Oh, kind of it breaks your heart. It, you know, thinking of an older child, thinking about their younger siblings in that, mm. you know, like I can't eat this meal because I need it for my my two year old. I mean, it's yeah. So this is such a heavy and it's such a big and it feels like the first thing that people need to be aware of is just awareness, just mm. hearing about this, thinking about this. I mean, you can't make a change unless you recognize it and accept it as real. I mean, this is a truth. And then the next thing, you know, asking and, but you talked about having the, the resources, what do you do next? So, you know, if I'm in practice and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I got to do this. I need to start asking my families, what's the prep work that people need to do first? And, and how do they go about addressing that so that in my practice, I'm not, as you said, ripping the Band-Aid off and leaving them, you know, high and dry, like, well, I'm glad to know, check the box, but I'm not, I'm not helping 
Yeah. So one, uh, I think it's important to not think of yourself being the sole responsibility of making this thing happen, right? So like having a hunger champion is really important, right? In the clinic or anti-hunger champion is, is another way of saying it. But having that champion in the clinic, I think is important. It doesn't have to be the doctor. It can be any of the other team members, even team members who have lived experiences with hunger. Imagine that, right? Giving that a voiceless person who thought their voice didn't matter a voice to speak about this in, 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 a, in a safe setting to recognize and allow that passion to move the change in that clinic. Right. So bringing a champion on board is really important, but making sure it's a team, building a team and your team doesn't have to be only in the clinic, but also can expand out of the clinic as well. There are anti-hunger organizations basically in every state around this country. And one of the things that I recommend typically or our team recommends, and, and maybe we can talk about it later, but we, we worked on a toolkit, a national toolkit. But our team has really been focused on making sure you work alongside anti-hunger organizations if you don't have the skill set or the tools in practice right now. If you need flyers, if you need the know-how of what's available, what's open, what's closed, what federal nutrition programs can your families access, what can they not access, all that kind of stuff. Where's the closest pantry or the food bank? What if the family wants to go to a soup kitchen? Where, where's the closest one? Working with your local anti-hunger organization is critically important because they can give you that extra training. They can come into your clinic during the staff meeting and equip everyone with the tools they need to be successful in that realm, right? Preparing you with the knowledge, the know-how that it exists. This is how it exists. And then what do you do about it? On top of that, we want to make sure we figure out how to incorporate into the workflow a, a screening tool. Right. So the screening tool that I would recommend is the easy hunger vital sign. You can just Google hunger vital sign or go into the toolkit. You can see that. But the hunger vital sign, that two question tool, easy to ask, incorporating a lot of providers I've seen actually incorporated into other screeners. So if they have a nutrition screener or like any other social determinants, they'll just sort of add in those those questions in there and, you know, naturally ask them. And that's a really good way of doing that. And the question of how do you intervene, I think that goes back to working with your local anti-hunger organization, identifying some resources at the lowest level, providing a handout with some of the resources on them. As you go more upstream, you can create partnerships with pantries or, or even I've seen clinics work with having pantries on site, co-locating your services with WIC agencies. Some of us have that going where WIC is at our site as well, to where we can just easily say, hey, you're zero to five, you're eligible hey, go down the hall, let's connect with the weight because that can be some added benefit that you, your family can get from that as well. So those are some of the ways that I would say, making sure that you create the system ahead of time before you run it. And yes, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be things that you, know, you need to fix in kind of like a quality improvement-like way. And that's okay. That's fine. That's what you want to do. But you want to start with at least having the basics in place. Do you have a screening tool? Where are you going to put that screening tool? Do you have champions who are going to sort of look at what's going on? And then lastly, do you have a means of intervening to support the families with meaningful interventions? Pediatrics has changed its face from what I think many years ago, there was so much focus on infectious disease and, you know, medical and at least in my lifetime of practicing pediatrics 30 years you know, it has become so much more about how people are able to live and thrive, you know, behavior issues. And we focus so much on sort of mental health and behavioral health, but man, underneath it, maybe these other things, you know, these traumatic experiences. I don't think we've thought of food insecurity as a traumatic, but gosh, it's such a basic, you know, so it's sort of a whole it feels like a paradigm shift. I, I'm not sure pediatric education has caught up yet. I mean, you're doing it. I mean, I certainly in my training, but that was a long time ago. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the the toolkit, some of the educational stuff? Are there MOC4s for food insecurity? What What's out there for clinicians to get better at this? So I will say that I feel like we're, we're moving in the right direction. We're starting to, you're starting to see a lot more of, of this kind of work coming out. AAP is doing a phenomenal job with putting out a lot of great resources. And I think that's sort of the gold standard that we're seeing. The resources around poverty, resources around racism, resources, resources around other social determinants that are continuing to really hamper our family's ability to thrive. And I think that's why it's so important. We realize that, yeah, we can talk about the, the asthma medicine. We can talk about the eczema. We can talk about the, the, the other aspects. But if we don't recognize all these other components that go into the health of our families, then we're going to continue to be frustrated at ourselves and our families for 
not being quote unquote compliant or adherent with our recommendations. Well, it's really hard when X, Y, and Z are in place. It's really hard when they don't have these other things in place. And, and thinking about that holistically, I think is really important to allow the next generation to be able to thrive. Food insecurity doesn't travel by itself, right? So with these other areas, typically food insecurity is, is right there with them. Typically food is one of the first things to go, but it goes along with these other areas as well. And I think that that's an important thing to think about in terms of resources. So I think there's a lot of really great resources. In 2015, that was the first time the American Academy of Pediatrics put out its first policy statement on food insecurity. This policy statement was so, so critical. And one of the leading organizations, professional organizations to do that was AAP, really encouraging the importance of screening using a validated screener, such as the hunger vital sign. That's the one that they pushed forward. Number two, intervening to address food insecurity, recognizing the importance of connecting families to federal nutrition programs as the anchor and then other emergency programs as needed and beneficial. Emergency programs, again, being food banks, pantries, or whatever it may be outside of that. And then lastly, advocating. Advocating to end childhood hunger, right? These are areas that we could do as clinicians, and the policy statement does a beautiful job in doing that. So the policy statement set the groundwork for us to be able to do it. A few years later, in 2017, American Academy of Pediatrics teamed up with the Food Research and Action Center, the national anti-hunger organization that's been doing this work for, for generations. They teamed together and developed their very first AAP FRAC food insecurity toolkit. And this was all about taking the lessons that we learned from the policy statement and putting it into implementation skills and practice, right? How do you do that? What are some flyers that I can put up on, on my wall? What are the words that I would use? What do the numbers look like? What, do, what, what does this look like on a day-to-day -day basis? How do I prepare? How do I screen? How do I intervene? All of this data, all these important points, how do I understand what these federal nutrition programs are? was really, really detailed well in this, in this toolkit that was put out in 2017. Four years later, the update to that toolkit came out. 2021, January last year, we put out a second toolkit. And I have had the opportunity of working with a phenomenal team and, and helping to co-author that toolkit. And it's a phenomenal guide. And it's, it's a, a great tool that has very comprehensive. And this last toolkit, we took a lot of the experiences of clinicians and put them in there as well stories of clinicians as they're incorporating this work. You're seeing sort of this influx of providers starting to screen for social determinants, including food insecurity. And you're seeing that they're surprised, they're acknowledging, they're, they're so excited because their families are excited as well. They're acknowledging their family's excitement and saying, hey, I didn't know that you actually, nobody was actually going to take this, that anybody was going to take this seriously. I didn't know that this was something you all cared about. And it's so great to see that you all are responding and meeting that need. So it's a, it's a really a really practical tool. Uh, a few years ago, uh, working with a team out of Philadelphia and, and Ohio, actually, a uh, team of, of, of researchers, we put together uh, an, actually a book, How to Address Food Insecurity. It's a book that we can put out. And, uh, I'm sure you have some notes for the podcast and we can put that out as well. But that really did a great job of talking about how do you teach in the classroom setting? How do you address food insecurity in the clinical setting? How do you sort of make this pervasive through healthcare, and especially in pediatrics? And I thought that was a really helpful tool as well. The other thing that I would I would say is one of the the most recent thing things that that I've seen is there was a QI project that went out recently from the American County Pediatrics teaming up with No Kid Hungry Share Our Strength, another national anti hunger group as well, and they put together this QI project to really give clinicians the fundamentals. They brought together a bunch of leading experts around the country who do this work, and they meet with the clinicians, and we go through a QI on how to uh, in incorporate this. And it's actually called an ECHO, for those who don't know, and, and this, these kind of ECHOs have been done for a lot of different uh, disease systems, and this is one around food insecurity. Very practical. You bring your challenges, you bring your questions in, and we work through that on a day-to-day -day basis. So these are some of the great tools that are out there that providers can use, especially around pediatrics and food insecurity. Is there an MOC part four that's out there? I just I got can. some information yesterday that now the MOC part four is like, you have to have 50 points. So, so this will be important to people. How can I do that in a meaningful way? Just curious if there's something. I can't say that I know that there is or isn't, but that is something that I should definitely look into because you're right. That's a big, big spark for providers to, to maybe spend a little bit more extra time with it. But I, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find anything on the, 
ABP site just to, I'm just curious, but well, you've just given us lots of resources and can I say one more? So the the book, I couldn't remember the name, but I actually have it right here next to me. It's called Identifying and Addressing Childhood Food Insecurity in Healthcare in Community Settings. That's the name of the book okay. uh, that came out a few years ago. Phenomenal book as well to check out. I'll make sure that we put those resources in the toolkit, including the policy statement, a link to the toolkit, the book, and if there's information about Echoes, was it an AAP Echo? It was, yes. An AAP Echo. So I know they're doing those all over the place. Well, this has just been such a great conversation in my head. It's like, oh my gosh, every time I talk to folks out there, I'm like, oh, there's just one more thing to do that's so important. And how do I, how do I do that? I mean, I think we want to do this all there's so many parts, but, you know, it's just start somewhere. If if nothing else, just thinking about it, I think mm. is, is powerful. Well, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time. And I so admire your passion for this and your compassion. It's so heartfelt. So I always ask my guests, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? I think that I was, am continue to struggle with, uh, like many of my colleagues, the um, famous imposter syndrome that, you know, not good enough. What if they don't accept me? I can't do research. I'm not smart enough. I'm not qualified enough. And that can be a hindrance for sure. And I think if I could go back, I would, you know, tell myself that I am where I need to be. I'm learning what I need to learn. I have the right mentors in place. I have the all the capacity I need and it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. Yeah. You are enough. I mean, I, I I struggle with that too. Like who am I to do a podcast? I mean, I'm not like, you know, I I I've I've never done this before. Who am I? But I'm so humbled and also uplifted by being able to talk to people like you. And so I'm grateful and I just keep putting it out there and hoping that that people will listen. But I, I think that's lovely and you know, that you are enough and you do have every right to bring your ideas to fruition because you, you know, it takes one person's idea sometimes to make a change. So anyway, well, hey, thank you so much. This has been so fun. I love it. It makes me feel oh, so hopeful about, you know, doing good things for kids. So please be well. And again, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. I, I had a, a really great story I wanted to share about one of the providers that I've been working with. I know we don't have any time, but no, you're uh, fine. Go ahead. Is that okay? Okay. So Absolutely. let me just share one, one story that I think can motivate your listeners as well. So I've been doing this work for a few years now. I've been excited to do it. A few years ago, I was, I was in a, a Head Start program doing some education with teachers, early educators. And there was a physician in the crowd that I didn't know they were there. And one of the Head Start workers uh, said, hey, uh, how do we get clinicians on board? And I said, hey, you need to have a champion. You can't force this on clinicians. It has to come from within. And then a, a guy raised his hand. His name was Dr. Fred Garner out of Burke, Virginia. He's in Fairfax County, one of the wealthiest counties in Virginia, one of the wealthiest counties in the country, one of the top five wealthiest counties in the country. He says, I want to be able to identify food insecurity in my setting. And so we teamed up together and he created a whole team around him. And he started screening in his clinic. And again, one of the wealthiest counties in, in, the, count, in the country, seeing rates of food insecurity at 10% or more right? He's been able to recruit other clinics around him, eight or more other clinics around him. He's been, he's been seen on the news now. He's doing all kinds of really great work. And the, the truth is a clinic, a practice that people assumed in this kind of setting, there wouldn't be anybody experiencing food insecurity. He saw some incredibly high rates of it and it changed everything for those families. So it's one of those things I think it's important to realize. Communities are communities. Food insecurity is, exists in every single county around this country. It is ubiquitous, and we have to remember that. So if you start to screen, you will see it, and it's important to intervene effectively. And I, I really appreciate you giving me this platform today. Well, and, you know, the, the idea makes me think, you know, you can, be, you can be the drop in the water that creates this ripple effect that goes beyond, you know, so, you know, again, this idea and, and, you know, I hope listeners out there, particularly if you're a trainee, you know, that you can make a difference. You don't have to have some kind of big credentials and having 
the title of physician is extraordinarily powerful. And, you know, we can, we can use that to, to make change because people are often like, oh, you're Dr. So-and-so and you want to do this. And, and so, yeah, you know, be the change as awesome. they say. So, hey, thanks again and appreciate everything that you're doing. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am so inspired and uplifted by this conversation and grateful that there are physicians like Dr. Essel out there in the world doing things for kids. Here are my takeaways. Number one, in the wealthiest country in the world, there are hungry kids in our midst. The 2021 USDA report found that in 2020, of households with children, one in six experience food insecurity, and children of color are the most affected. Number two, the pandemic magnified and worsened the need, but we stepped up. Dr. Essel said, we know how to do this. Interventions included an uptick in charitable donations to food pantries, but even more so, federal programs made a tremendous difference. These included increased SNAP benefits, summer EBT, WIC, and other programs. Number three, the flexibility of programs such as EBT allow for food sovereignty, that is, the humanistic ability to choose food for your family. Number four, for food insecure homes, the goal is first enough food, then nutritious food, and then novel foods follows. Number five, the issue at its root is poverty. Poverty is expensive and privilege is blinding. That really hits home. I, I think we just don't see what's right in front of us, not because we don't have good intentions, but we just aren't seeing it. Number six, the idea of rugged individualism argument is often made that to overcome poverty, you just have to work hard enough and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And all you have to do is look around to see stories of rising up out of hard beginnings. But many, and especially for people of color, they do not begin at the same starting point. Number seven, historically structural racism, such as redlining, made it and makes it nearly impossible to move up because of rules meant to keep people of color especially African-Americans, out. Despite having funds to buy homes, bank loans were not granted. What followed was a flight of resources, leaving these families to essentially fend for themselves. Number eight, Dr. Essel talked about the initial belief that COVID was the great equalizer, that it could take anyone down, but it instead was the great magnifier of disparity. Illness, death, housing and food insecurity, for people of color, it just got worse. Number nine, there is a belief that you can probably tell who is likely to have food insecurity. Children and families in larger bodies and well-dressed patients and parents, they must have enough to eat. Number 10, that is not the case. This is the obesity paradox. With many families who have food insecurity, they must choose cheap, low-quality, highly processed foods that are calorically dense to get by. And kids know you have to eat everything you can't waste when you might not have food on your plate again. You, you eat what you have. Number 11, the, quote, well-dressed patient or parent puts their best foot forward to preserve dignity. You can't tell by looking. Number 12, food insecurity can look like, A, food anxiety, a preoccupation with where the next meal is coming from. B, food monotony, decreased diet quality, decreased variety, and calorically rich food with increased flavor due to a high content of salt, sugar, fat. And C, decreased food quantity, the parent and often older children who eat less so that the younger children will have more. This should break our hearts. Number 13, so ask. Dr. Essel uses and recommends the two-question hunger vital signs universally on paper or tablet versus a verbal questionnaire, at least at every well-child visit, more often perhaps, but at least annually. Parents answer never, sometimes true, or often true to two questions. Question one, within the past 12 months, we worried whether our food would run out before we got money to buy more. And question two, 
Within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last, and we didn't have enough money to get more. Number 14, asking normalizes the questions. We ask this of all of our patients. Food insecurity is invisible unless you screen. Number 15, for a positive screen, Dr. Essel says it is important to talk with a parent alone, away from the child. This really preserves their dignity and it prevents shame and guilt. And then ask permission to offer resources and support. Number 16, so this is the hard part. I had no idea. Before I met Dr. Essel and before I heard him speak, it just didn't register with me that this was a problem. I I mean, I should have known, right? But now I know. Now you know. Do something. Number 17. So here are some steps you can take in your setting. Start somewhere. A. Identify an anti-hunger champion, perhaps someone in your practice with lived experience. You, you never know, maybe one of your staff that you do a presentation on food insecurity or they listen to this podcast and then you discuss this and you might find and be surprised that there are people who you work with shoulder to shoulder that have gone hungry. B, build a team and partner with anti-hunger organizations in your state. I'm putting a link in the show notes for the Food Research and Action Center at frac.org where you can find information on these resources that are in your region. C, educate your partners and your staff. Again, it's time to, you know, raise the awareness. This should not be a point of shame for our patients. It should be a point of shame on us that we are not thinking about our, our children getting enough to eat. C, create your workflow for screening. D, download the FRAC toolkit. I put that link in the show notes as well. And F, assemble resources for SNAP, WIC, food pantry locations, maybe even co-locate resources right in your practice. Number 18, advocate. Use your voice. AAP policy statements can guide the way. There are ECHO QI projects. And you can reach out to your state AAP chapters to see if there is work in this area. And if not, maybe you're the one to start it. Number 19, no child should be hungry, ever. Thank you so much for listening. And and again, I found this conversation so moving, so just really heartbreaking is the only word that comes to mind, but yet so inspired. So Keep doing what you're doing. Go out there in the world and make changes for children because you are in a position to do amazing things. Take care of yourselves, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.